Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Lorian is still on hiatus, still under her deadlines, but she'll be back soon. Today, we are chatting with studio development executive turned writing coach and consultant Jen Grisanti. Jen's decades-long career began when she worked for TV legend Aaron Spelling, eventually overseeing programming at his company, ultimately overseeing programming at CBS and Paramount. Today, Jen is a highly sought-after consultant for studios in addition to coaching writers. Like our podcast, Jen believes deeply in the power of emotionally complicated characters and guides writers into discovering that power within their own work. So Jen, we have to say welcome. Welcome, Aw, thank you so much. I love you guys. I love everything you're doing for screenwriters. I love your podcast. So thank you for having me. Well, we're so excited. I um, peeked behind the curtain. I got to quickly talk with Jen yesterday for our listeners. And um, right away, she was like, you know, I think uh, understanding good writing has to do with, you know, understanding our characters emotionally. And I was like, ding, 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 you are on the right podcast. So (laughs) we're super excited to have you, Jen. And before we dive into our interview with you, we're going to do our first segment, which is called Adventures in Screenwriting, wherein we talk about our week. So uh, Meg, we'll start with you. How was your week? Well, my week of writing was I'm at the just write it shitty stage, uh, you know, which is a very hard stage, I have to say, because you're kind of out of the blue sky, out of intellect, out of the kind of ordering brain. And you've got to just be in the creative brain where nothing is any good. Nothing is like you ever thought it was going to be. It doesn't matter how much you outlined and how many conversations you had suddenly this just sucks and the dialogue is terrible and what are we doing and why are we doing this? And then you go eat lots of cookies and break your Weight Watchers and, you know, want to scream or a couple of times. I really wanted to scream through my computer uh, over lines of dialogue that I wrote. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, fuck. It's like the hard part of writing when uh, it's all shitty. Um, but you know, then you have to stay, you know, and I know sometimes for emerging writers who aren't being paid, that's when you can be like, well, this doesn't work and I'm not going to do it. And you walk away and you don't come back, but you have to come back when you're being paid. (laughs) So you have to get it done, which is kind of great. And I, and that's why I want everyone to get deadlines and friends to make them do it because you just have to push through the shit because all of a sudden, you know, because I think so much of this is moving from the left side of your brain which is the logic and the beat sheets and the conversations and what everybody wants it to be and what everybody needs it to be and what you know it could be to the right side of the brain, which doesn't care about any of that and just wants to be a free-flowing discovery process of creativity. And if you stick through the shit pile of it not working and being terrible, you know, suddenly, and it did take a couple of days, honestly, the character starts participating. The right brain starts participating and suddenly a new idea arrives that isn't in a beat sheet. It's not anywhere that anything anybody talked about, but it organically arrived. And it's like the character participating. And I don't even know if it's going to stay, but it was enough to give me hope because I was like, hey, that's kind of a good idea. Um, again, I don't know how to execute it perfectly, but I was like, oh, I like that. That feels like her character and that feels like it's going to move the plot forward. And 
that's great. Um, you know, because you ultimately we cannot. We're going to do a lot of left brain talking today with Jen as one of the best people and guides in the industry um, for pros and people and emerging writers alike. And ultimately, as you listen to Jen, you're going to get inspired. I know you are. But ultimately, you have to write. The right brain has to participate or it's all for not people because the right brain has to be part of the process. And the other thing that I thought was interesting to have to me this week in terms of writing was I was following the beat sheet. You know, it's been approved. Everybody's on board. I'm walking going through it. And that it doesn't, the writing is so hard. Like it's, it's the first indication to me that something's wrong. If this was or, organized and created in a way that the engine worked, this scene would not be so hard to write. Why is this scene so hard to write? Okay, well, let's just write it shitty and move to the next one. This scene is really hard to write. Why is this scene so hard to write? Well, let's keep moving. This third scene is still too hard to write. Something is wrong. We are off course. It should not be this hard to write. The right brain cannot participate. And I can see suddenly that we're treading water, that we have narratively not started the story. There's no problem. There's no conflict. We're just still explaining things. So we have to stop. We have to stop. And I have to immediately put it down and I have to go back. Um, so that was that was an interesting moment of just a signal to you. If it's really, really hard to write the scene, maybe you're off. The, the engine is off. Maybe you have to go back and, and think about. Uh, so there's hard to write. And then there's, okay, all of this is hard. Why is this hard? Because, um, you know, and the third thing of, of this week was, this incredible balance between clarity of goal for character and then, but not so clear and so communicated everything that now you're just waiting for it to all happen. And there's no surprises. There's no discovery. There's no, and it's why you write so many drafts because that balance of finding clarity of the audience understands what we're going for and why we're going for it. And then not being so obvious that it's boring now it just takes drafts and drafts and drafts and you get the note. It's not clear. And then you get the note. It's too clear. And then you get the note. It's not clear. And then you get the note. It's too clear. And you just want to scream. And then maybe something deeper is wrong that you keep getting these notes too. So I was on that. And the last thing I'll say is that my son, as, ever, as our, some of our listeners know, has moved, has gone off to college, his first year of college in film school. And um, I get occasional texts, you know, I don't get too many. Um, but he did send me a text because he loves something his teacher said, who I should credit, and maybe next week I will, which is, um, he said, Mom, my teacher said that a lot of people say the word dimensional characters, but they don't actually understand what that means. And that what it means is, one way to think of it, which I thought was interesting, was what is the contradiction in the character? That that creates dimension. So think about the easiest one for me is Indiana Jones, right? He's not afraid of anything. He's so smart, but he is afraid of snakes. So he's brave and yet afraid of snakes. And I thought, oh, that's a quick little shorthand for people to think about their characters. And when people say your character isn't dimensional, well, is there a contradiction in your character? Can you take the archetype and then do the opposite inside of it to give them humanity and vulnerability and uh, flaws and all that kind of stuff? So like if you had archetype cards, I think I mentioned this once, we, we were putting down archetype cards for another project and we put down minister and then on top of it, I put gambler, right? And so suddenly you have a dimensional character because they seem opposite and yet honestly true to human condition. You could be a minister and a gambler and suddenly it's interesting. Um, so that was my week. Um, Jen, how was your week? 
Oh, God, I love everything you just said. It, it like rings like so many bells went off for me as far as my process and thinking. Um, first of all, like when I get stuck, when I get stuck with creating content. So where what I'm doing right now is I'm in the middle of developing a digital product for story therapy. And I'm continually trying to think of bite-sized pieces like you just shared from the instructor of how do you teach writers in a way that they immediately get what you're trying to say without having to go into the expansion of it. And, and that's everything I think all of us in story are trying to do. Like we're trying to figure out what is working, why is it working? How do we create tools so that the writer can grasp it so that when they get stuck, they know how to move through it. And one thing that, that you mentioned that I also love, like when you look at the intellectual mind, I think mindset for me is something that informs my process, my creative process, as far as intellectual, intuitive versus survival mindset. So I think when structure comes into play, when I'm writing tools for structure, I kind of want to be in the intellectual mindset. I want to know that I'm in that side of the brain, that, that I'm in the idea of structure. When I want to write emotional tools. Then I'll do something like I'll meditate and I'll think of self-awareness and what is going on in my life that I may interpret in one way and somebody else may interpret in another way and understanding that gap and how do I create something emotional that I can teach that is coming from that mindset. Uh, and then I think the intuitive, so when we, it's survival mindset, when we think survival mindset, when most of us, so say for example, when I was climbing the corporate ladder, then I was in survival mindset. I was in the mindset of do, 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 do. How do I get to the next step? How do I this? How do I that? The ego tends to lead when you are in the survival mindset and the character is in the egoic type place for at least the first half of your screenplay as it links to why they want what they want. And, and then moving through the obstacles, getting to the understanding of the greater good, the understanding of the intuitive mindset is what is going into the arc of growth. So, so everything that, that is being discussed, I love because I'm actually in it. And I know I'm coming from a different worldview and that I'm coming from the, the story consultant, writing instructor, former executive mindset point of view, but it all speaks to all of us. And, and I think it is, so important for writers to understand, which is one of the main things I love about what you guys are doing is you're, you are giving the good, the bad, and the ugly of the journey. And what does the journey look like? That's awesome. So that's what you're doing too this week is you're starting to, you're doing this digital, um, will it be a digital platform kind of like yes. that people will sign up for or? Yes. Yeah, that's fun. Yes. That's awesome. 
So, and you look at that, like it, it is a fascinating thing. Like when you look at when you launch a movie or you launch a new series, you're doing the same tools in a different way. Like you are teasing your audience into what it's going to be so that you're creating curiosity, you're creating anticipation, you're creating a desire to want to know what is going to, what you're going to go through in the digital product. So I think like being in the creative side and the, and how do you create the right side versus the left side? So where you're having freedom, but you're also having strategy and how to bring people in. Yeah. Anticipation. That's pretty much the big note we got, which is yeah. we're not leaning in and anticipating what's going to happen. You're telling us too much. And it's like, oh, geez, but you just gave us the note that you don't, we don't, you're not tough. Jesus Christ. But I mean, that is, that's, I mean, that is storytelling. I mean, people, this is not, you know, that's like, I do a lot of drafts. Um, Jeff, how was your week? Uh, it's been an interesting week. For those who listen to the show, you know, I um, am working on a feature that's playing festivals right now. And so I'm kind of ping ponging between writing new stuff and then like, like navigating distribution for this feature. And um, I'm putting together an electronic press kit for one of our festivals. And I really consider myself a writer first. So even when I'm doing film stuff, which is exciting, I'm trying to contextualize it. and Like, how will this serve my writing career? How does this inform me as a writer? And one of the things I had to do for this EPK was put together my director statement for the film, which I haven't really had to do yet. Um, and so it really was a great thought exercise for me to, of course, I knew esoterically what the movie was about and why I did it and what's underneath the surface. But when you have to specifically articulate that in a concise way, it's kind of challenging. And it made me think this is a really valuable exercise in post-production as you're trying to sell the movie. But I think this would be a really valuable exercise for our writers as they're working through drafts or even before they jump in, because having that big kind of why signpost as you jump into your own material, I think can be really valuable. And of course things change and, you know, Meg's mentioned it, but part of writing is discovery and part of writing is redrafting. But I think the deep emotional yearning or question or theme that we're trying to explore can remain more or less the same as we're going through different drafts, even if our view of that theme changes or those characters change. So as an exercise, if you're kind of finding yourself lost in your own work, I think like signposting like a writer's statement before you jump into your work or as you're in your work could be a really valuable exercise for our listeners. That none of you want to do. I know right now, know. all of you are listening to this going like over my dead body. Am I writing a writer's statement about this project? Why would I do that? That sounds really hard, but you don't have to show it to anybody. You could just be like, I'm going to take 10 minutes. What would I write? And you know, you could get on the Facebook page and tell us if you did it. You don't have to post it, but you can say I was brave. I tried a writer's statement. So can you give us, Jeff, kind of what creates a writer's statement? Is it your intention for the, for the story you're writing? What is a writer's statement? Now that well, I think that's a great question. Everybody to do it. <laughs> well, and I think you are right, Meg, that it, it is something that invites some resistance. Like even to write the director's statement after this was done, I was like, this is kind of hard. I think because it's concise and it's tangible and you're trying to take something that feels emotional and deep and almost subconscious and articulate it. But what mine kind of looked like was I started sort of broadly and, you know, said like, I set out to create a very personal movie that would also entertain audiences and, some of you have seen my feature, some of you haven't, but it's sort of, an, there's elements of 80s throwback. It's kind of like an hangout movie callback. So I mentioned the big chill in the breakfast club and kind of trying to 
reinvite those types of movies into today's market. But then of course there's the next part, which is why I did it, why it's personal and why it's about me and Meg's seen the film, but it's loosely inspired by the death of my friend. So that's in there. Um, but of course, grief isn't enough. You know, writing a movie about grief isn't enough. Um, so I tried to articulate, maybe I should post my director's statement. <laughs> I was waiting. Yes, Facebook I think group. you should. <laughs> I'm dancing I around it, aren't post I? his directing statement for us. And I want you guys to jump on the Facebook page and tell us. You don't have to get, post your writing statement. You can if you want, I think. I think that's legal. Um, but, you know, just a challenge out there for all of you. Sure. Um, Jen back to you i'm sure with your especially if you're trying to do a digital platform you probably have had to summarize yourself and why you do what you do a lot right in terms oh, yeah. of, that must be something you have oh yeah i and also i think like i know you guys have spoken about plenty of times like talking about why the writer wants what they want why the writer is writing the story they're writing why the protagonist wants what they want so the right the statement is going into your why why are you the perfect writer why are you the perfect person in my case to be sharing this type of experience this arc of growth with the teaching process and what do you want to teach so at the beginning of every product that I do or every arc of growth is I'm looking at, you know, what is my main message? Why am I the perfect person to be delivering this message? What is the dilemma that the writer is facing that this message, message can create a solution to that dilemma? And how do I, how do I communicate that in a short, succinct way? Right. So, Say, you know, say, for example, story therapy I came up with last year, where suddenly I recognize that so many of us do that are working in story, that when you're working in story, you're massively dealing with psychology. And as a current executive, when you have 300 scripts behind you every year and you're dealing with staffing and you're meeting with 100 writers, you are dealing with how how can they mine their well how accessible are they to their emotions and what connects with how i am staffing them and and how do you succinctly put that in something so story therapy hit me when i recognized that so many studio executives were saying we're like psychologists because anyone who works in story writers directors actors consultants, studio executives, network executives, anyone who works in the story, you have to look at psychology. So with story therapy, I thought, how do I communicate in a short, succinct way what's, how story therapy could be an answer to a dilemma? And story therapy, I came up with story therapy goes into how we do the emotional work on the past to become unstuck in the present to reach the dream in the future. So this kind of goes into the writer's life as well as the life of the character. Yeah, and then that's awesome. That's so much, from there. Yeah, that's so much what we talk about here. Now, is story therapy a consultant where people do this with you? Is it remind me, is it a book? Is it like how would our how if, if people are intrigued by this, how would they access it? So story therapy, last year I did story therapy going into 
the whole idea of structure and story. Whereas this year I'm going into character and character dynamics. So I don't have a book on story therapy. I have digital products that are available on my website. I do it in my one-on-one consults. So I have like, you know, several questions that I ask writers that go into story therapy that help them write their writer statements, going back to that, as far as why are they writing what they're writing? What is the message? What is um, the character, the worldview that they're going through? And something that you talked about before that I loved when you mentioned the contradiction and the adding of dimension. So thinking about uh, one thing I go into with story therapy is thinking about how does the plot go opposite the flaw? So understanding what is the flaw and how does the external plot allow an opportunity for the character to become conscious of the flaw within the arc of growth and go opposite the flaw. So looking at want versus need and understanding dimension and depth within that. Oh my God, there's so much to unpack there. But first, before we get into the details of that, because we have a whole section on that of questions, um, can we just start with how you broke into the industry and then how that how you shifted over to the writing coach? I know that our listeners love to hear that stuff. Yes. So, and this will go into the recognition for so many writers when you hit your all is lost type moments, how you think they are the worst thing that happens in the world when you're in them. But then when you get beyond them, how you recognize the significance of them. So I uh, went through uh, being a studio executive for 12 and a half years, as was mentioned at the beginning. Aaron Spelling was my mentor for 12 years. Uh, And when that ended, so I was actually mid-pursuit to the dream, I had five shows on the air. I had never had any issue, never had a conflict as far as things not working in the direction that I was going. And I was at a new studio from being at Spelling. So I had been at the new studio for uh, a few years. So it's a new group of people and new people that you're aligning with. And I hit a hurdle in a day that literally ended the 13 year pursuit. And I knew it in the moment I had to make a choice. And that choice had to do with how I felt personally and what was going beyond my comfort boundary wise. That choice in the moment ended my my tenure in my climb to being a studio executive, thinking that was the dream. And then I had to figure out what was next. So I remember before it happened, I remember looking at executives who their contract wasn't picked up, but they had eight months left on it. And I remember thinking, I want that. 
I, I want that. Like, I want that. And then when it happens to you, you're just kind of like, oh my God, you know, yes, I have this time left. And yes, I'll be paid when I'm careful not what you working. Ask for. <laughs> you, but you have to be careful what you wish for. And I used to think too, like the more I was going up the ladder, I used to think I'm getting further away from the creative process. I'm getting more into the administrative process. And that's not where my passion and my purpose is. So that led me to open my own company. And then NBC reached out to me because I had covered the show Medium uh, when I was at CBS Paramount. And they said, uh, they said, you know, we'd love for you to be the writing instructor for Writers on the Verge. And that perfectly aligned with what I was doing with my company. Uh, so that led a whole new direction. And then that led to me writing three books and it doesn't mean that then like you literally you you go to the top of one ladder you lose and you fall all the way back down and then you've got to start from scratch and rebuild and redefine so you know i think people who think oh well because i had all that um status in that one direction that's going to communicate over to this direction. And then you get there and you recognize, no, yeah, no, I, it this is a whole new, it doesn't. <laughs> it's a whole new thing. I mean, it's it a does new... a little bit, but it's not yes. a ladder by any means. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then you throw the ladder out because then you recognize why do we ever get on that ladder thinking that that is the point to, you know, contentment in the process with so many writers thinking when I get an agent, I'll be happy. When I staff on a show, I'll be happy. When I sell a film, I'll be happy. But then when you do it, you recognize then the real work begins and, and how do you move forward from that? So that's what led me. So that it was a transition, a life transition. And what what helped me define my brand and how I fell into emotional truth was a life turning point. So my second life turning point, as I mentioned, was my contract didn't get picked up and I had to redefine and recreate. And my first uh, point was when I went through a divorce, a uh, long relationship that ended in a short marriage. And I had to redefine and because uh, I went through that writers would come into my meetings and, and know some of them knew about what I had gone through because I was with somebody who was in the industry and that would lead people to ask me questions. And in my initial, uh, response to that was to, you know, keep it to myself. And then I started opening up, then I started sharing with them what it felt like to go through betrayal. So that made me then say to them, have you ever written about that? I'm not talking from a place of autobiographical truth. I'm talking about a place of emotional truth. And suddenly writers were getting outcomes, like they were getting agents, they were getting managers, they were selling shows. And that's what led me to write Storyline, Finding Gold in Your Life Story and the recognition and connection that emotional truth is what we're all craving when we watch story and and writing from a place of depth as you know you know your film i like bow down to you and oh. and i you know i i look 
at where you've gone with emotion. And, and I recognize that that's what we all want. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much, Chief Doctors yeah. of Janus. That's all I will say. Um, so you, you worked at Aaron Spelling. You worked as an executive working with showrunners. From that side of your life, when you were there, it's such an interesting yeah. perspective for our, our writers to hear about. What was kind of the, the big lessons of that? Either notes you were giving to showrunners all the time or things that Aaron Spelling taught you? Well, one thing that you tapped on at the beginning that is very true of the life of a current programming executive, when you said, when you're getting paid, you have to deliver it anyway. And the mindset of the current programming executive people would say, well, what happens when you get a script as a consultant that isn't great? How do you get it there? And I said, well, I come from the current programming mindset, which is you can get a script that totally isn't in alignment with where it needs to be before it hits the air, but you have to get it there. So I do come from the mindset of how do you take something and make it the best that it can be so that when it hits the air, it has an impact. So there was so much in the current programming process that led to the skills of learning that because you have the pressure of the studio, you have the pressure of the network, and you know that you have to deliver, like you, you have to work with your showrunner on giving notes that they understand and know how to apply. And you also, I, I mean, I think in the note giving process, so many writers think, again, once I start working, then I don't have to go through that that much. And that's so untrue. Like Just that, that is that. a fallacy. Just reverse that. It, yes, exactly. So, so I think, you know, in a part of the current programming executive job, I you know, is to keep your showrunners from jumping off a building once they get notes that that are outside their comfort zone or outside their vision and understanding how to unite the vision of at that point in time, the studio, the network and the showrunner, which was why so many current shows could be taken off the air at that time when I was going up the ladder after a few episodes was because you couldn't get to the point where that vision was unified. You needed more time and streaming actually, I feel like has given a freedom to that because they have that additional time to make that unification work. Is there anything you learned? Like did Aaron Spelling have any kind of um, I don't know, mantras or don't ever do this or, I mean, I just, you know, sometimes those little tidbits can be fun and instructive. I think the, I mean, I learned some, I learned all about story from him. So, I mean, and he would always help me with my note giving, understand the balance, but he would always say, you have to at first tell them what's working and why it's working. So that you open them up, open the writer up to understand that you are on the same team, you see their vision, and then you go into what it's what is not working and why it's not working. And so that was definitely 
instrumental for me. And then I think seeing him in rough cuts where a script would be in a place where it was like, all right, it should be a good episode. It feels like everything was where it needs to be. And then he'd watch a rough cut and he'd start doing his magic of resequencing scenes in a way that made the story work in a much stronger way. So did so you I see think, any pattern in how he did that? Like, um, well, yes, he would always say like at the act break. So in network television, you the commercial break, the act break is all about the commercial break. So he would always say the strategy when you have an act break is you want the point of highest jeopardy. You want to end your break in a question and not answer that question until the uh, until you come back from commercial break at the top of the next act. So so that was very instrumental as well because you recognize that whether you have commercials or don't have commercials, you still have to write toward the act break in a way that the audience is dying to come back to get an answer. And then he would also say things like, as I mentioned to you, I went through a divorce and I remember a moment with Aaron Spelling who, you know, he's a, he was such a gentle being. I mean, despite the fact that if you got on his wrong side, you never wanted to be on his wrong side. If he was such a gentle being as far as he loved making the dream happen and he wanted everyone around him to partake in that pursuit of how do we open doors? And he would always say things like, I can open a door, but they have to walk through it, you know, and teach writers in a place of, you know, and I, 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 that is something that I've learned as well. But when I went through my divorce and that was kind of like, we hit this point where he was like, I mean, how do you begin to say something in such a professional atmosphere, yet, you know, somebody has gone through this life fall. And, and I still remember the moment when he sat me down and told me about when he went through a divorce and how, you know, they variety did this thing on Aaron's woman of the week that he went through when he was healing. And he said, you know, you don't have to go through that. It's just, this is just part of life. And it's just something, there's something so much better for you out there. And, and it was, and I still remember those words. I mean, it was like, we sat down for 10 minutes, but it was crucial and how it made me see life and even see stories. So, so it was great. I think Jen, let's go ahead and transition into the specifics of some of the coaching that you do. Um, during our, during our pre-interview, you mentioned the triangle of emotional wounds or the, the triangle of the wound. Yeah. The triangle of the wound. Can you just kind of give us a primer on that? Because as you described that, it just began to open up how I see my own work. Yes. So the triangle of the wound, I did. Uh, it was something when I was doing story therapy, it actually came to me before I went into story therapy. And it was a tool that I began to recognize from watching streaming. So whenever I create my tools, I am coming from the worldview of watching story 
and seeing story evolve and seeing how do I capture how story is growing and evolving and put it into tools so that the writers can grow in the same way that story is growing. So Triangle of the Wound was one of those tools. I began to see this pattern when I watch shows like The Flight Attendant, Dead to Me, Fleabag, The Bear, uh, Mayor of Easttown. I began to recognize that there was a pattern where uh, the childhood wound was the first uh, part of the triangle. So you have the childhood wound, then you have a trigger event that happens before we enter the story. And in the case of the shows that I mentioned, that trigger event was a death. And then the series trigger and dilemma would split open both those wounds and you would develop the character from those three places. So that's what made me come up with Triangle of the Wound. Then I also would see it in feature films. So it was just the inciting incident took the place of the series trigger. So you would have a trigger event that would happen before we entered the story. That trigger event very often split open the childhood wound. And then the inciting incident would split both open and you would go from those three points, you would seed it through. So like Meg, you talked about anticipation and the frustration of when you get the notes that there's you're on the nose or you're, there's too much versus not enough. And I think the balance of that is everything because the strategy of the wound is everything to the success of a story. I've seen shows, I'm, I'm actually currently watching a show where they tried something and I give anybody credit who goes outside the box to see what will work but what the reason it didn't work in in this situation was there was no strategy to the wound they they it was like they got the note from somewhere make us know the character wound so suddenly you would have scenes and out of nowhere would come a story of the wound that would kind of pull you away from the main pursuit versus enhance and parallel the main pursuit. And then you, you know, there wasn't a strategy. And because there wasn't a strategy to the wound from the very start, the audience wasn't sure like where they were going or why do we care? So everything. I go into is the recognition of the wound and the flaw and how the external pursuit gives an opportunity to heal that wound and become conscious of the flaw in the process. Can you, when you talk about strategy, they didn't have strategy. Can you talk about a show that does have strategy so that we can hear what strategy is, like what you mean oh, by that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So say... For example, okay, so yeah, an, an excellent example, when you look at, say, for example, a show like Succession, you know, you have a series arc, which is the question of who will succeed Logan, then the year one has to do with will Kendall succeed Logan. So you have that question, then year two, 
Will the daughter or the the other son succeed Logan? Then you you have your three. So you're it's consistently staying with the same main conflict of who will succeed Logan. And yet you're still going on a journey of the idea of yes, no, yes, no. Like another example of a strong season one arc was Homeland. So in Homeland, you have the question of, is Brody the prisoner of war who turned or isn't he? And the, the season one arc, you wanna look at your season one arc is every episode is yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, toward the answer of is Brody the prisoner of war who turned or isn't he? So there's a strategy. So you're saying it's the kind of almost like a series engine strategy that then the wound, the triangle wound has to fit into that. So in in succession, pretty much the credit sequence tells us the childhood wound, right? Like over the credit sequence, you see all these little kids and their dad and the kind of fucked up life they lived. Though that, that childhood wound is also playing out. No one's talking about it, but it's playing out between them, right? Which is also the sophisticated way to talk about wound. You know, it doesn't mean flashback to the moment of the wound. It's how people are now dealing with it with each other. Um, In choice and action. In choice and action, which tells you who their characters are because they have all of these ideas of how to psychologically deal with this father figure, right? And and that's either being proven correct or proven the wrong approach to him. Um, So I see. So... And then, um, well, Mare of Easttown, which is a kind of one that ends is easier to see, right? Because she has, I don't know what the wound of her childhood is, but I know the wound of the son dying will then. Okay. What's the wound of the childhood in that one? So the childhood wound, we find out in episode seven that her father committed suicide. So her father committed suicide, leading to her negative narrative that I'm not enough. That led to her flaw with the lack of belief. So so the lack of belief that we feel when we enter the story of who she was and the series trigger and dilemma that she hasn't resolved the, the missing woman with Katie Bailey. So when you connect, I'm glad you brought up Mary of Easttown because that's a perfect example of triangle of the wound because you have uh, the wound of her son. So the father was... Um, bipolar, the father committed suicide. The son, Mare threw herself into work. She didn't process the wound of the dad dying. She threw herself into work. Then she had a son who we see through their contentious dynamic that she wasn't there for because she threw herself into the work from not healing from the dad. So the son represented what she has to get over in the present. The grandchild who we see in the pilot episode has ticks is representing the future. So she didn't heal from the wound from the father that led in her mind to a contributing factor with what happened to her son committing suicide. Her grandchild represents an opportunity of righting the wrong from the past through being better in the present so that the future can happen in a stronger way. And then all of those three, what you're saying is the next level is you now have to make sure that folds into the strategy 
or the engine of the series. It can't be existing on its own, like exactly which is what happens when we all listen. We all have drafts where it's yeah. existing on its own because we're trying to figure it yeah. out, and we didn't even know yeah. they had that wound until we wrote it down. So it, it, when you write that, people, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It means you're discovering, and that's good. Um, so I totally get that. So can you talk more now about the flaw and how that kind yes. of folds in here? So the flaw I'm noticing more and more, like when you look at um, Dead to Me, when you look at the flight attendant, those two are great examples where we see the flaw from the start. So in Dead to Me, we see it in her sarcasm when the neighbor's coming over with a casserole, Karen, and she says, oh my God, I can't imagine what it's like to be you. And she's, well, well, imagine if your husband was killed and left by the, so the side of the road to die. Kind of like that, like very sarcastic. So we see her flaw and we see, we're gonna learn through the grief counseling that rage is what's holding her back and the, how she's gonna process that. And, and then in flight attendant, we see her flaw from the very start. And, and what I, come, I came into recognition of is the flaw is the story of the wound. So as you mentioned, Meg, rather than taking us to a cut of exactly what the childhood wound was, when you start with a flaw, then you're creating anticipation to want to know the story of the wound. So in flight attendant, we see her parting, we see her use of alcohol, we see her promiscuity, and that makes us curious about what is the wound, which we get the hint of with her father in the pilot episode, and then that will be seeded more and more through, which again, has really nothing to do with the fact of she wakes up with the dead man next to her, but what it woke up was what we'll later learn in the series arc is her childhood wound. She was there when, not to give anything away, spoiler alert, but she was there when her father died and they were drinking and she was 10 years old and they got in an accident and she fled the scene and didn't tell anybody that she was there. So with the series trigger and dilemma, when she wakes up with the dead man next to her, she is being confronted with the idea of fleeing responsibility, but because her DNA and blood and whatever is all over the place, she has to confront it and confronting this situation, she has to confront the last, the past situation. Yeah, that's past awesome, situation. it's so clear. I yeah. would also just add in for our writers, um, if you can make the flaw active, much better for you. A lot of people choose flaws of inactivity, passiveness, they, they're afraid to do something, they're shy. And certainly that is one way that human beings adapt uh, to trauma or stress or wounds, but it's not that fun to watch. And you're going to have to be an incredibly good writer like Aaron Sorkin level to make that interesting. So if you're an emerging writer and all of you want to do inactive, passive, afraid characters because you're afraid, because you're emerging, I get it. But go ahead, inhabit that other part of your brain that's active you know, you're talking about they're full of rage. 
um, their, their, her avoidance is by having fun and drinking and like having fun is a way to avoid that. They're the behaviors that are very active and engaging and entertaining can also be avoidance tactics. Um, so just have a think through that. Um, if you are getting kind of caught in the cul-de-sac of inactive passive main characters, I literally want you to reverse it just as an exercise, just reverse it and see what happens. Um, just because I like want to jump in there. Quickly, Jen, like one way to think about flaw is like a false coping mechanism for the wound. Like a yes. coping mechanism. Yeah, just like essentially it's a coping mechanism, hopefully an active one based on what Meg is saying that w- that inevitably does not solve the problem of this wound that that the character has. And of course the journey of the movie is figuring out what other options there are until we settle on something that can resolve this. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. And, and also being aware, like they're not conscious of the flaw. So when you're entering, they're not conscious. And another thing on flaw that I began to recognize is there are often more than one flaw, but there is a dominant flaw. So it's under, it's being clear strategy wise, when you're thinking about the flaw is thinking about what is the dominant flaw. And then also thinking about when you have a flawed complex character, you also want to show polarity so that we see the other side of the flaw. So in Mare of Easttown, you know, we see her caring side in that she responds to a neighbor directly when she goes to the call at the very beginning because she lives in that type of community. We see how she cares about the people that are involved in the situations she has to handle from the law enforcement standpoint. So so I do, I, I have yeah, found- There's that also, dimension in contradiction, right? The, yeah, and I like that yeah. word polarity of the yeah. flaws, really awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah. Right. So um, when you work with writers, um, well, we have two questions about it. One is, what are some exercises you do if their characters are, are lacking emotional depth? Is there anything specific you would suggest or an exercise we can give our listeners if they're getting the note that their characters lack emotional depth? Yeah, I, I think that it is understanding, is there a strategy of the wound and what they're doing? Do we... And, you know, I've seen shows now I've had writers say to me things like, do I have to have a wound? And it's, it's, you know, I've seen shows deal with the wound only in the present because the wound is so powerful in the series trigger and dilemma. And I have seen it work, but if writers can ask the question, you know, what is my strategy of the wound? How is the flaw getting in the way of the dream. Do I feel the flaw uh, throughout? Uh, do I have uh, a strategy as far as the season arc in terms of the wound so that I'm paralleling the emotional arc with the external arc and feeling the growth in both? And, and so that is like, I think the main work that I do. And then I also do the work with writers on, you know, the idea of know who you are. I mean, if you are not doing the emotional work on your life, then it's not going to show up in your character. So, so looking at your life and figuring out, like I've noticed 
things that I love when I see in story. I love when characters admit that they're wrong, when characters feel humiliated, when characters, like I remember in the tunnel, um, the character of Elise, you know, is, is on the spectrum versus her partner was so emotional and over the top. And I would feel her feeling of wanting to understand the emotional side of life and, and knowing that she's limited, but she had the desire to understand life from her partner's worldview and how much you feel that because it resonates with us always learning how we can be better. So, so knowing yourself is another way that I work with writers on understanding what are their flaws that are getting in the way of the dream of them being a working writer and how can they draw from that and bring that into their characters. That's awesome. One other thing I thought about flaw in terms of, and I don't know if this is like a rule or a difference, but like when you're talking about flaws in shows, because there's so many characters, um, you can see that person and their flaw through the other character because it's a series. So you can jump point of view a lot. And, um, you know, like in Dead to Me, we can see her kind of acerbic rudeness and anger from the other character's point of view, right? Right. Um, and the drinking, we can see how it's affecting people, right? Mm-hmm. I think with features, often you can certainly have that kind of self-destructive character. Those are two self-destructive characters, right? And those are much easier to see flaws in because they're self-destructive and it's kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. But not every character is self-destructive. And sometimes I think the flaw in a feature film is often the perceived strength in act one of that character. It doesn't always come across as a flaw. Um, right. Because that is the discovery that you're making through the three acts that this great strength I have is actually blocking me. It's actually stopping me. It's actually an avoidance. It's at, it's the kind of understanding that this identity you have that people love you for, you have to let go. Like that is super a huge shift. Right. So with and I don't know so much about uh, TV because I haven't done as much work in TV in terms of that. But often uh, the because in a feature, you have to do a huge arc in three acts. Right. We only have an hour and a half. Um, yeah. Often that flaw, if it's not a self-destructive character, is is kind of buried a little bit um, uh, or the perception of it. Um, yeah. So that's just one thing just to think about uh, for the, our listeners in terms of features, uh, a perspective on flaw. Um, so what would you say working with all these writers uh, emerging in pro and sh- people who want to be showrunners and people who are showrunners, you know, running the gamut, are there any common mistakes that you see? I think, well, from the showrunner, like from a former current programming executive, and I work with writers all the way up because I staff 15 primetime shows. So I, I think the things that I see at the upper level is you is understanding like going into what you talked about a strength being considered a weakness or which you know which I think is a great thing when you have a flaw that is a perceived strength but it's actually a detriment or um you know the idea of the opposite of moving into that but what I've noticed that uh, writers at the higher level can get in their way of is understanding 
the delegation process. Like if you have a writer who is a brilliant writer and suddenly they're thrust in the position of being a showrunner and the weight of the world is on their shoulders. And so they start delegating and they stop writing. So I think like one thing that I saw with that from a current executive perspective was I almost felt like the writers that delegated and stopped writing lost confidence in the writing process. So I think that where I saw that work in a way that was great was was when a showrunner would have a second in command who gave them the strength to where they didn't have to be on top of everything, to where they could still balance the writing with the administrative part of the job. So I, I think that was something that I took notice of more from the business side. From the writing side, I... I think the mistake that a lot of writers make when they're staffed is they don't continue to write scripts. They stay in the show that they're on, you know, that could be on a show a very long time. So yet if they're not writing scripts every year, then they're, they're not having a calling card that is reflective of where their writing is at the time when they're going to be looking for work. So when the staffing position goes away or the show gets canceled or the show ends, then they don't have that perfect piece that is going to be properly reflective of where their writing is at that time. So what I hear you saying is that when we tell emerging writers, it's all about writing, 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 you got to write, that doesn't go away. You can be running your own freaking show and it's still about you're going to lose touch with yourself. You're going to lose touch with your creativity. You're going to lose touch with your confidence. You've got to write. And when you're staffed and you're finally popping champagne because I'm staffed, guess what? You got to write your own stuff or you're going to lose contact with yourself and you're going to start to doubt who you are because you're just servicing everybody else's writing. I mean, people, this advice is going to be with you forever. So just get used to it. And keep writing and start writing. Okay, this is all I want to say. Um, okay, so Jen, thank you so much. We always finish our shows asking the same three questions. Okay. Um, so what brings you the most joy when it comes to coaching and consulting? I would say what brings me the most joy is seeing the arc of growth of the writer and understanding when... I see someone go from not understanding to understanding at a level that creates a belief in their voice, that creates the possibility of having a career with longevity. So when I see that happen, that transformation in the process, that's what brings me the most joy. On the flip side, Jen, what pisses you off most about coaching and consulting? I would say what pisses me off most is the writer who has the talent, but doesn't do the emotional work on the belief. So continually, the writer gets in their own way so that the dream isn't going to happen. That frustrates me. 
And if you could be remembered for one contribution you've made as a consultant, as an executive, however that contribution uh, was done, what would it be? It would probably be probably be something that helped me my entire career, which was focus on the work. The work is the one thing you can control. Block out the noise and focus on the work and the work will get you where you want to go. Well said. Jen, thanks so much for coming to the show. Um, do you want to talk about your books that so that our, our listeners can um, get them or what's coming, yes. what's happening? Thank you. You guys are fantastic. I love this. I'm excited. Um, so my books are Storyline, Finding Gold in Your Life Story. That's all about the idea of emotional truth. So if you're struggling with how do I add emotion to my, my writing, that's a great book for that. Change Your Story, Change Your Life is more going into the business side of how strategically do you perform in meetings? How do you draw from your life so that you know what to communicate uh, to move forward? And then uh, TV Writing Toolkit, I have a second edition out. So TV Writing Toolkit, How to Write a Script That Sells, my second edition has my newest information that is coming from a lot of my digital products. And then lastly, my next digital product is Story Therapy, Character and Character Dynamics. And that will launch in January of 2023. So they could maybe see you on your website. And so when they will get know when that, what's your website? Just so they can follow you. Yes, my website is jengrisanti.com. Okay, cool. Thank yes. you so much for Thanks, being John. here. I, I was totally fascinated. Thank you so much. I am fascinated and in awe. And I love, as I said, everything you guys are doing. I love the message that it gets delivered. And I have so many writers who are gaining so much knowledge from what you are doing. So thank you for everything awesome. you're sharing and doing. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. Thanks, John. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks so much to Jen for coming onto our show. Uh, we'll be doing a recap chat about our conversation with Jen over on our Patreon site, so check it out. Speaking of Patreon, for our top tier patrons, you'll have two workshops dropping into your feed in the next week. Speaking of our Patreon, you have two workshops dropping into your feed in the next week. One is our story workshop from August. Sorry for the delay on that. A couple of you pointed out that it hadn't dropped in your feed yet, but we're getting that resolved ASAP. And the second will be a Q&A, and uh, we have some more exciting workshops down the pike. So remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.